I invite you to have a seat. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it really is a privilege for me to bring the word this morning. I've taken a few weeks and allowed um, other uh, folks to come and fill the pulpit. Uh, the two uh, two weeks and three weeks ago, Pastor Tim came and brought the word. I was able to to join you guys uh, in the uh, in the video, and so I was thankful to do that. I was. Uh, blessed that uh, Pastor Tim was able to do that. And then this past week, I was encouraged that our brother Aaron Krim from, Hager, or from the church at Martinsburg could come in and be a part of our worship services here. That's the first time that we've had one of the pastors uh, from, the, from uh, the church at Martinsburg to be with us here since we began as a church. Um, and that really was a special time as I remembered what the Lord had been doing over the last four years in my life and the life of many of you that were a part of it, even from the beginning, even from the, the moment when we just began to talk about it. This idea that they got to come and be a part of what, what we're doing here reminded me of the DNA that we have as a people, that we are big picture focused. We're big picture focused. Remember that. As we gather as a church, it's not just about what we're doing here this morning. It's about what we believe God will do in and through us in the years and months to come. There's coming a time where for many of you, uh, it will be time to go. And I don't mean to enter into glory, although that day is coming for us as well. That's not the point of this morning, nor do I hope the day draws too nigh. But there is coming a day where maybe the Lord is going to call some of you to join another work. Just as we left Martinsburg to come to Hagerstown, he may call you to go to Frederick. He may call you to go across the country to Sacramento. He may call you to, to leave this place and to serve as a missionary in a foreign land where you'll have to learn a language and a new culture. So from across the state to across the country, maybe even across the city, to, to join a new life group, remember that God has not called us to comfort, that he has called us to go. Remember the stages of Legion that we looked at last week, how Legion was rescued by Jesus from darkness, from the tombs, Second scene, he's there sitting at Jesus' feet, and he says, Jesus, can I stay with you? Can I, can, I, can I stay with you? Can I stay where it's comfortable? And Jesus says, no. The day's coming when we'll be together, but for now, it's time for you to go, and, he, and Jesus sends him. And so I want to encourage you to remember that, to keep in mind that God has called us to be big picture focused. He's doing a work here in Hagerstown. He's doing a work in this room. I know that. I can tell you that. I can testify just this week how God's been faithful. He's working in his people. But remember this, that he's not called us to be comfortable. He's called us to go. And so that's uh, sermon number two for the, for the morning. We're gonna, that has nothing to do with the text that we're going to be jumping into. You say that's sermon number two. Yeah, I'm going to put a plug in before we jump into the text. Uh, sermon number one happened at 10 o'clock. You might say, hey, I love being a part of the, of the people of God. I love gathering on Sundays with the church, and it just seems like it's too short. Well, if that's your testimony, if that's your statement, I've got good news for you. At 10 o'clock, we have a time of prayer, and so there's obviously some prep work that goes into to what takes place here on Sunday mornings, and, and the folks that are a part of that prep work will will hang around after they get it all done and we'll, we'll finish up and at 10 o'clock we'll set aside that time for prayer. This morning we had a time of prayer and of praise and so it was really special as uh, several of us gathered and we were able to testify to one another the faithfulness that God had demonstrated to them and brought to their mind even this morning. And so uh, it was an encouraging time and then we spent some time in prayer. If you would be interested in something like that, I want to invite you. You're welcome to be a part of that. I guess it's a bit unofficial, but it's not an unofficial invite. You are welcome to come to that and be with us for a time of prayer and even a time of praise at 10 as we prepare our hearts uh, for the service and ask God to bless our time. So that, is, that was sermon uh, number one. Then I, I just preached sermon number two about big picture focused. And uh, now I'll make up for the three weeks I was gone. We'll jump into today's text, which is Mark chapter five. And uh, listen to this. We are going to be working through verses 21 to 43. Yes, we're going to be working through quite a bit, but the good news is we're breaking it up. Today's part one. Next week will be part two. Before we jump into the text this morning, before we jump into this passage, I want to give you a, a little bit of a heads up. Okay, so the author of this gospel obviously is uh, no less than the Holy Spirit as he's inspired every portion of scripture, but we also know that God is speaking through Mark, and one of Mark's unique styles is he likes to make sandwiches. Anybody had a, ever had a Reuben sandwich? 
This is a Markin sandwich. This is a Markin sandwich. And what Mark does is he'll oftentimes, this isn't the first time that we as a church have encountered one of his sandwiches, so-called. But what Mark will do is he'll begin to tell a story. And he'll finish that story, but he'll plop in the very center. He'll, put, he'll posit in the center of that story another story or some fact or some truth that may seem like it's unrelated. It may seem uh, non-important, and yet it's actually part of the key to understanding the text. We have one such situation this morning. And so keep that in mind as we look at this. We're going to hear the story of a man by the name of Jairus and how his daughter is sick. As we follow that story, we're going to run into a woman that has a great need. We're going to see how Jesus meets that need. And so let's look to the word of God this morning, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 and down to the end of the chapter. This is what the word of God says. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd followed or gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the pressing crowd around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth and said to her, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while I was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him and he put them outside. And took the father, the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the girl was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, this is your word. You've given this to your people this morning for our encouragement, for our correction, for our edification. So we pray that that would take place. Father, would we see Jesus this morning as the Messiah, the one who's ushering in his kingdom, and may we learn about the kingdom a little bit more this morning. We would your people be helped and your word be blessed? We ask these things in your name. Amen. So this morning I want to walk you through the, the passage. And so I'm going to invite you to, to walk along back through this longer section. And as we do, we'll begin to unpack it. We're going to be reminded about several aspects of Jesus' ministry as it relates to his messiahship. We're also going to be learning a little bit more about the principles of the kingdom. And remember, it's not just, uh, that we'll, we'll, we'll take part one today, and so we'll learn a little bit about the kingdom, but a little bit more about uh, Jesus' messiahship and his role in this kingdom. We'll finish this up next week, hopefully. Of course, along the way, we'll make some helpful observations that maybe not fit right underneath of the messiahship or underneath the kingdom here, but hopefully I think they'll be helpful to you. I know that they will, actually. Before we begin to, to get through this, 
passage, I want to just kind of give you the upfront idea, the main idea that I think kind of rises to the top. So here's the main point for this morning. As the Messiah, Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is open by faith to all, regardless of gender, race, or class. As the Messiah, the capable Messiah, Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is open to all by faith, regardless of gender, race, or class. So let's jump into the text this morning. Verse 21 says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd followed after him. He was beside the sea. You remember last week, where was Jesus? He was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He was in the the country of the Gerasenes. Do you remember what type of reception he received there? Overall, do you remember? Was it good or was it bad? Well, initially, it was okay. One man comes to him, and it was, a, and it was an eventful uh, encounter, to say the least. Jesus meets a man who's possessed by many demons, legion. And Jesus miraculously sends these demons out of this man, delivers him from his troubles, which is great, right? Everybody's slow clapping on that one. That was impressive. But then what happens to all those demons? What happens? They're sent into the pigs. And what do those pigs do? They run off into the sea and drown. And then you're right. What happens then? At that point, the party's over. We don't want Jesus here anymore. It's a sad commentary that that region cared more about the financial stability than the spiritual well-being of their residents. Here, Jesus was there to deliver folks, to preach the gospel And they asked him to leave. But that's another passage. We've already looked at that. In contrast, as Jesus arrives now, not from the east, east, over onto the western shore of the Sea of Galilee there, we believe in Capernaum. He's thronged. He's inundated with people. The crowds begin to gather around him. And these ones aren't calling him to leave. These ones are there to see what Jesus would do. They're They're there to hear what Jesus would say. And at some point, as this crowd begins to gather, no doubt Jesus doing his thing, teaching and healing, a man by the name of Jairus comes up. And he falls at Jesus' feet, and he begs Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. And he's, he, the mindset that he has is, my daughter is as good as dead, Jesus, if you don't come to save her right now. The Word of God says that she is the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, So it's quite possible that Jesus, as it was his custom to to visit the synagogues, that Jesus and Jairus had known each other, that they had maybe even had conversations, been in the same synagogue there together. The synagogue ruler, what was his job? He was a lay official responsible for the supervision of the building, the care of the building, even maybe arranging the service, calling people to speak, ordering, bringing order to that service. Remember that Jesus had been in this area quite a bit. He'd already preached probably there, even in that uh, synagogue. He'd preached in that area, the gospel of the kingdom, as well as healed very uh, many people. And so when Jairus finds out that his daughter's life is in jeopardy, and he finds out that Jesus is back on the west side, right? He's back in Capernaum. Jairus comes to him. Look what it says in verse 22. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that, so that she may be made well and live. It's not too difficult to imagine this picture. Imagine a, a middle-aged, perhaps, Jew in the first century. A man in the synagogue, so we know he's a practicing Jew. He's a faithful Jew. He's upright and proper. He's a leader in the society there. People look up to him. Where do we find him? We find him in the dirt at the feet of Jesus, begging him, earnestly begging him, imploring him. As we look at this story, I want want to remind you that this is not just some story. This was a reality. It's not too difficult for anybody to imagine the emotion that that this man would be caught up in. Especially if you're here this morning and you say, I've got a daughter. Maybe you have a 12-year-old daughter. What would it look like if you were to find out that your child was dying 
and the man that could save him was there, what would you be doing? What would your posture be? It's not too difficult for us to see. This is where Jairus is at. He's doing what any of us would do. He's begging Jesus to come and to save him. And what does Jesus do? You say, well, I've heard this story so many times. Well, then perhaps you're in danger of overlooking what Jesus does and not being stunned by it. This is the king. This is the son of God. This is Emmanuel. You think he doesn't have things to do, and yet what does he do? He welcomes this man, and he goes with him. The word of God says, and he went with him. Here's what I want you to notice about Jesus, that he is approachable. When you think about the Messiah, God's Messiah, the king of the kingdom of God, what do we know about him? We know this, that he is approachable. This is who Jesus is. Many are the cares of a king, and yet this man allows himself to be troubled with the burdens of his people, everyday people. I think of Esther. This is a great illustration to think about and to contrast with the story of Jesus. Think of Esther, this beautiful Jewish bride of the Persian king Ahasuerus. Xerxes the first. She's the, she's the very bride. She's the queen, but she's terrified to approach her own husband in order to foil a plot which would have led to the general annihilation of her people. Thousands and thousands, millions throughout the empire were to be destroyed. And she's afraid to go to her own husband, the king. Why? Because he's not approachable. This is the way that role is even designed and built, that you would not consider them approachable. And so she is concerned Her situation is dire. Millions of people are going to be decimated, erased, and not by a virus or by a disease, but instead by execution, annihilation. And so all life is precious, but the fact that Esther hesitates to inform her king about the lives of many, but Jairus seeks out That king, Jesus, and falls at his feet, begging him. It speaks volume to the type of king, to the type of Messiah that we have in Jesus. He's approachable. He's approachable. Of course, this is why Jesus came to earth. He left heaven. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He came to bear our burdens by dying on the cross in our place. Do you believe that? Think about it. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that our God is approachable? And if you do, do you demonstrate that belief by approaching him? Think about that. Do you you honestly give credence to him? Do you recognize the nature of our Messiah, that he truly is approachable? And if you believe that, how do you demonstrate that? Do you demonstrate that by going to him in prayer? By taking your needs to him? When you find yourself in battle, carrying burdens, maybe that are too much for you, do you take those things to God or deep down do you imagine him to be more like the worldly kings of storybooks and history? Who though holding all power and resource dare you to approach them, dare you to squander their time on your seemingly insignificant issues. How do you view God? Hear this passage, this story of what we see Jesus doing. It encourages us to have the attitude the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 urges us to have. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. Why should we do that? Why should we with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because Jesus is approachable. Because Jesus is approachable. And by the way, I want to just take a moment and park there and make an application. If you're, if you're a part of Hubtown Kids or even if you're not, I want to just put a plug in for you. Think about this. We talk about this a lot. One of the attributes of God is that he's unchanging. Is that true? He's unchanging. And so the nature of God is that he is approachable in the first century So that's, I can't do math real good, but that's a a couple thousand years ago, right? And so if God is unchanging, but in those days he was approachable, what about today? 
Is he also approachable? If God cares about the, the lilies of the valley, if he cares about the sparrows in the air, if he did that long ago, does he also now care about that, those things now? What do you think? Yes. He is. He's unchanging. And so if you got your little worksheet out and you're, you're looking for this, is Pastor Josh going to talk about God being unchanging? Well, he just did, so you better mark it down. Whether you're a child or not, mark that down. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you say, hey, I really appreciate what you said about Psalm 34 in your prayer about how God doesn't change. Or sorry, how about how we should testify of the work that God is doing. I love that passage, Psalm 34. Maybe that you're thinking that in your mind. And you're thinking, yeah, God's been faithful to me in the past. He's been available. He's been approachable for me in the past. But right now, I don't feel the same way. Well, that, this, this little side conversation is for you then. If he was faithful and if he was approachable for you in the past, he is the same now. You say, well, when I came to Christ, I repented of all my sins. I, I asked him to forgive me, just as 1 John 1, 9 said, and I believe that he did. But now I wonder if he's approachable. And what does the word of God say? If we confess our sins, he is still faithful. He is present and future, still faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Jesus, the Messiah, the king of the kingdom of God, what is he? He is approachable. And what a simple truth, what a, but what a powerful one. And so Jesus, along with his disciples, engulfed in this huge crowd, begin to follow this desperate man who is leading them to his precious little daughter. And that's the beginning, that's the, that's the first stage in our story, and that's the first part of the Mark sandwich. But now, the story begins to, to turn a bit. We, we're introduced to some new characters and some new information. Here, Mark begins to tell that story within a story. And so look at verse 25. It says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This is a pitiful situation, pitiful indeed. This woman has been sick for 12 years. Regarding the, the nature of her disease, we don't know a whole lot. We assume it is some sort of feminine disease that's plagued her, we know, for 12 years. So she's bleeding. She can't be helped. Doctors have tried, many of them, legion of them, unable to help her. All the home remedies from her friends, mom, grandma, ineffective. And the scriptures tell us here that she is emotionally, physically, and financially depleted. She's, she's spent. She's exhausted. She's to the point where she has no money and she has even less hope. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Maybe you know somebody in a situation like that even this morning. Somebody that's just done. They've got nothing. They've tried everything. And yet they just can't get it together. They just can't find victory. They just can't find that place of health. One interesting point as we consider this woman contrasted against Jairus or Jairus is that this other man is named and this woman is not named. And you say, well, that's, that means really not a whole lot. Maybe Mark just didn't know her name. And so that's why he didn't write it down. That's exactly the point. Why does Mark know this man's name, but he doesn't know this woman's name? It just goes to show she's a nobody. You contrast her against Jairus. Jairus is a somebody. He's a ruler of the synagogue, and we don't even know this woman's name. That's not the scriptures teaching us that women aren't important. I think what the Spirit of God is revealing to us is that these two folks come from different classes, and they represent different genders, and yet from one end of the spectrum to the other, here's a little, just a little hint of what part of this text is about, from one end of the spectrum to the other, as it relates to class, 
race, and even culture, we see that Jesus has time for all. What's more, according to Jewish law, this woman living in a Jewish community is seen and has been seen for 12 years as ceremonially unclean. In one way or another, this woman has been ostracized and has felt as though she were some sort of a vagabond in her own town. It's pretty, pretty sad. A moment ago, I said it was pitiful indeed. So perhaps now you begin to see a penniless, broken, socially unfit for society woman, and her situation is also dire. This woman, like Jairus, uh, she's learned about a man that preaches a message of repentance and faith. One who accompanies that message with the power to heal. She's come to the end of her rope, and in desperation she says, this is the man that will rescue me. And so she reaches out for his rope, quite literally. She thinks in her mind, if only I touch the clothes of this man, the power that fills him will heal me. You say, that's a wild idea. I agree. That is a wild idea. And yet, it worked. She reaches out through the crowd with limited energy, reaches out and touches the clothing of Jesus. And she, like Jairus, she believed that Jesus was approachable. She even believed that he was interruptible. Look at verse 29. What does it say? And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the pressing crowd around you? And yet you say, who touched me? Yet he looked around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Can you believe that? She's miraculously healed just like that. Immediately, she feels the effects of her healing. Imagine being sick for 12 years some debilitating disease or illness. Some of you say, well, that's not too difficult for me to imagine. Maybe that's your story. Maybe it's been longer than 12 years. Maybe it feels like 12 years. Maybe you've forgotten what it feels like to be healthy. Maybe you've gotten used to the new normal. It doesn't feel like a new normal anymore. It just feels like it's always been this way. But then in an instant, you're made well. That's exactly what happened to her. This next part is interesting. Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks, who touched me? He says, who touched me? Now, they're not very helpful at all. You kind of want to give them a dirty look or maybe smack a couple of them upside the back of the head. They look to Jesus and they say, duh, Jesus, there's a huge crowd. They've been following us since we got off the boats, like they knew we were going to be there. They, they just gathered around us, and now they've been with us this whole time. Everybody's touching everybody. Matthew's like, yeah, freaking out. Nobody's wearing a mask. Nobody's got hand sanitizer. And Matthew's like, everybody's touching everybody. Ooh, right? That's what they're saying. They're like, come on, man, everybody. What, what do you mean? But did Jesus know that this woman touched her? Did he know her? People have argued about this for years. Most commentators believe that he did not know this woman and he did not know that she had touched him. So how do we reconcile the fact that Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking in their hearts and in their minds or that he knew what was in the heart of man? How do we reconcile that with the fact that Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? Well, here's what I would offer for you. I don't know the answer exactly, but here's what I'll offer for you. God hears the falling rain in the middle of a thunderstorm. He knows the ancestral makeup of every droplet of every storm that's ever dropped rain from the sky. He knows the history all the way back to the dawn of time of every molecule. 
He knows it all. Nothing escapes his sight, whether the crowd is five or 500. Here, the the disciples, they can't see the the trees or the tree for the forest, and yet God is intimately acquainted with every leaf on every branch, on every tree, in every forest on the face of the earth. He sensed every beat of every heart of every human that's ever lived. So that's God. And Jesus sensed that power had gone out from him. So it, it, it appeared that the healing of the woman was not the result of Jesus consciously trying to heal this woman. It just went out of him. He said, I felt the power go out of me. Almost like a tree bearing fruit. Somebody comes up to the, what's the front or the back of the tree? Comes up to the back of the tree and just pops an apple off there. The tree says, I don't know what that was, but I felt something. I still got plenty more fruit. Lots of people think when they read this, they think the power went out of Jesus as if he just like powered down in some way or ceased to become who he was. That's not true. But Jesus felt that power, that surge go out of him. And so how do we marry all those things together? Entertaining the idea that the healing of the woman was probably not known to Jesus and that this miracle still occurred and that it was probably due to the the limitation that was imposed on him by humanity, God becoming flesh. Here's what I know. Jesus was was the representative of God the Father. And it was the will of God the Father that this woman be healed through Jesus. And you get that, don't you? It's not too difficult to understand that Jesus is not the rogue of heaven says, I'm going to go rescue. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do my will. No, Jesus comes to earth. Why and how? By the will of the Father. And Everything he does, he does in accordance to the will of the Father. He is not seeking his own, but he is seeking to do his Father's will here on earth. By the way, some of us think as we've read this again is that Jesus has lost his power in some way, but that's, again, that's not true. Jesus has never lost his power. He simply noticed that this power has issued out from his person to another. I want to point this out, that when things like that happen to Jesus, to Jesus I, I imagine that he is, need, that, that, that in some way costs him we could take a play, some notes out of this play of Jesus. We know that Jesus spends time on the regular with the Father, does he not? Early in the morning, often, throughout the day and throughout the week. We regularly read of him escaping for times of recuperation and for prayer, even in chapter 6, which will be in shortly. So I imagine that the work, the spiritual work that Jesus is about, his father's business, depends uh, on him depending upon God. And so the play that we can take is to remember that as we do the work of our father, as we do the will of our father, it will cost us spiritually. How, how many of you have recognized that in your life? When you've been in a spiritual battle that you've almost felt like you had to just crawl back to the couch, fall down on your hands and knees and begin to pray. How many of you ever felt that way? I know that I have. This is what, I imagine this is part of what's happening with Jesus, that he, the power has gone out of him. Not that he's depleted, but he as a conduit of grace from the Father is working in creation. And we've been called to do the same thing. And so may, may we not be found also seeking times of recuperation and prayer, just as Jesus did. But that's not the only shocking or questioning piece this morning. There's another piece that I want to bring out. That Jesus stops to look for this woman in order to speak with her. Does that strike any of you as odd and timing? Think about that. Where's, where's Jesus going? What's he doing? There is a little girl that's dying. And as we know from reading this story already, already, I'll let the cat out of the bag, she does die. 
And so we can assume that there's an issue of time here. And yet Jesus stops. The woman's already healed, right? Instantaneously healed. And yet Jesus stops to talk to her. He knows what he's going to do. He knows that this woman's life is in jeopardy. And yet he waits. If he doesn't hurry, instead of needing an ambulance, Jairus is going to need a hearse, right? Time is of the essence. He agreed, in a sense, to help Jairus. He went with him. And now he's stopping to deal with this nameless woman. So we've talked about this idea that our Messiah, Jesus, that he's approachable, but I also want you to see that he is interruptible. That he's interruptible. Let me ask you this. Do you imagine Jesus, when you do imagine him, do you, wait, you, you think of him as some uninterested part-time teenager working at a custard stand as a summer gig? Just kind of chilling, putting out the vibe, doesn't really have anything to do. Everybody else that's on the crew is looking at him like, what's he even doing? He waits for everybody to tell him what to do. Is, do you, is that how you imagine Jesus? Sure, he'll do whatever you want him to do. He's got nothing better to do. He's just sitting here wasting time. Or do you imagine him like your neighbor who has nothing to do but read the paper and golf? Is that what you imagine Jesus? No, Jesus has things to do. Read the book of Colossians. Just read any of the Gospels and see how busy this man is. And yet he's not too busy for this woman. Husbands, you may be able to, uh, or maybe even parents, you can relate to this Often during the course of a work day, my work day, my wife Sarah will call and she'll need to speak with me about something of varying importance. And after I answer the call and greet her, she will sometimes say this, are you busy? Does anybody else snicker in your heart when you hear something like that? Are you busy? What does she imagine that I do? Of course, she knows I work and she knows I work hard, but how should I answer that? Honestly, how should I answer that? Well, yes, I'm busy. However, I'm not too busy for you. I'm interruptible. Now, she is hearing me say that, and she's thinking, well, sometimes you are too busy for me, but that's not the point. Many times, I'm not too busy for her. And so what do I do? I stop. I'm interruptible. This woman here, she didn't intend to commandeer Jesus' day. She didn't mean to really slip in here. We'll talk more about this next week, but she didn't really mean to stop the procession to this man's house to save this young girl. No, she just wanted to slip in. She wanted to come up from behind Jesus and not even let him know that she was there. How many of you could, can understand that along when sympathized with the disciples that it would be very difficult to know that somebody had touched your garment with the intention of being healed? And yet Jesus did. She just wanted to get in, get out. She didn't want to bring up what had happened. Next week, we'll talk about this idea that she talked about the whole truth. Jesus said, who touched me? Come to me. Who touched me? And trembling in fear, she comes to Jesus and she tells him the whole truth. We won't unpack that right now, but how embarrassing. What a struggle to lay everything out before Jesus. She didn't intend for that to happen. And yet Jesus stops. Remember, she had lived a life full of circumstances telling her that she was unimportant. She had lived a life that demonstrated that there was nobody left to advocate for her. She had tried and failed. She had seemingly been destined for this life of ostracization. She had nobody in her court. and She felt like she was a nobody. I'll just come up behind Jesus. I don't want to bring this up anyway. I'll just touch his hem. And I, with, because of my faith, I know that he will heal me. Have you ever met people like this woman? Have you ever met people like her? People that you just don't know what to do with them. And it's not because you don't like them. You just don't know what to do with them. They have problems and more problems than you know what to deal with. And you want to help them. And you try to help them, but at the end of the day, you're unable. So you're just like that doctor. You're just like that friend that tried. They did their best, and then they walk away. You've wanted to give them a better quality of life. You've wanted to encourage them. You want to solve their problems even. Maybe that's how you approach them initially. 
But now that you don't know how to fix their issue and it's bigger than you, it's bigger than what you and your circumstances, more than you and your your friends can handle, now it's just kind of awkward and frankly, it's annoying. It's a constant drain on you, right? When you think about people that you've tried to help but you can't actually help them. You can't do anything for them. Maybe as you drive around Hagerstown, maybe somebody in your family, somebody comes to mind and you say, I know what you're talking about. I've ran into some some people in my life that I wanted to help, but I wasn't able to do it. And then it, because of their troubled nature, it was too much for me and it just drained on me. That's, that's this woman. We don't know what, if she's, what she's done. If maybe she's done something to deserve this. Maybe not. Either way, we know that she can't fix it herself and nobody else can. And so you can imagine it's challenging to be around those type of people because you... You just want to live your life. You want to go on without thinking about them, out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. And contrast that woman with Jairus. Just for a minute. She has nothing to offer. Literally, nothing. She can't help you. She can't even help herself. She's not a bad person, as it were. Then you got Jairus. He's a respectable man in the community, right? He's a respectable man. Yeah, he's got problems. Everybody does. But he pulls himself up by his own bootstraps. Again, I'm not trying to down him. I'm just saying he's an easier person to hang around, is he not? He doesn't have the same issues that this woman has had. This woman has no one to to be an advocate for her. And here we see Jairus. He's advocating for his daughter. But the fact that Jesus is approachable and allows this man to intercept him, if you will, and to take him to his daughter, and then that he would allow this woman to interrupt that, what does that teach us about God? What does that teach us about the kingdom of God? I believe that what Mark is pointing to as he sews this story together is he's pointing to the fact that God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of persons. James chapter 1, verse 27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As you think about this statement Pure religion, undefiled before God, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Let me ask you this question. I think it'll help to see what James is getting at in that passage. What can a needy widow and a troubled orphan do for you? What can they do for you? They can interrupt your groove. They can make things challenging. They can bring problems to the table that you don't know how to fix, not immediately. James is basically condemning those who are partial to certain people because of social differences. People who are more trouble than they're actually worth by your personal estimation. But I think his condemnation also applies to race and even gender. To think that someone is not worth our time because of the color of their skin or even their God-given gender, which, by the way, is two. To think that they are more or less than someone else because of that, that has no part in the kingdom of God. No part. One does not take precedent over the other. It's not by works of righteousness that any of us have done that are in the kingdom of God. It's by his mercy that he saved us. So that was the end of James. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, let's look at that. If you have your Bible, I invite you to flip over. If not, just write that reference down. Consider it later this week. James goes on after he speaks about pure religion, undefiled before God. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? 
There's nothing wrong with that, with having a gold ring or nice clothes or even being the ruler of the synagogue. Nothing wrong with that. But if that man comes in and there's another man with poor and shabby clothing also comes in, but you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme and honor the name by which you are called? You say, well, what is this? Is this some kind of a prosperity message that you're preaching today? Are we, are we to, are, or what are we doing? Are we attacking those who, are, who have a little bit of blessing? No, this is what... James is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he's breaking the dynamic that is the framework of your mind as you grade people and you say this person can help me this person can't this person has value and that person doesn't James is saying you're crazy God has look how many poor that God has extended the gospel to even in the life of Jesus when he was here on earth how much time he spent with those who had nothing or so little And then he goes on to say, hey, listen, not every rich guy is a bad guy. But don't you know that there are so many, the the people that oppress you right now, James says, are the ones who are rich. And yet you kiss their ring and you kick dirt in the face of those who are poor. And Jesus says, James says, this ought not to be. This ought not to be. And Mark is demonstrating by the life of Jesus as he tells us this story. No doubt he's heard much more. And yet this is what he decides to tell us in our minds it kind of makes sense right Jairus is a respectable ruler of the synagogue he's likely a hard worker he provides for his family he's not a burden on society and now he 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 makes his own way he carries his own weight and now he's got this one issue it's not a habit just this one one time he needs help and so in a way it kind of makes sense that we would think that Jesus would be willing to help him but this woman is so different. And put yourself in Jairus' shoes for just a moment. Jairus knows these things about himself. He also knows that his daughter is in dire need. And he's went to Jesus, and Jesus comes to him and says, yes, I'm going to go with you. And so they go together, and they're, they're probably moving quickly. And then all of a sudden, Jesus stops to deal with this woman in the middle of a crowd. And yeah, she's been sick for 12 years, but it's been 12 years. Can't this wait a little bit? Imagine how bad that would have irked you, maybe. It's interesting that when grace is extended to us, it brings us joy. But when grace is extended to others, oftentimes it can create anger. How could God do that? And somehow we grade ourselves and we say, look, my situation's more dire. My situation's more need. I deserve more than that. And yet we're reminded that the kingdom of God is open to all. Regardless of your background, regardless of the culture, regardless of the color of your skin, Regardless of your gender, it doesn't matter. This woman is going to stop you and I, a ruler of the synagogue, a man, have stopped you and asked for your help and yet you're going to stop. Imagine the the anger that, I don't know, could have boiled up in Jairus or Jairus. What would happen if you were in this man's boat? If you were in his shoes? And by the way, look at verse 35 quickly. This is more of what we'll talk about next week. But is his, is, would his, if he was angry would, or impatient, would that not have been justified in some way? What happens? Well, somebody comes and says, what do they say? Your daughter's dead. There's no need to bother the master, the teacher anymore. Just, just leave him be. Interesting. Why does Mark tell us the details exactly how long this woman has had the sickness what does that even matter you could have just said a long time and why does it matter that this little girl is also 12 years old this woman's been sick for 12 years this girl is 12 years old I think Mark's trying to point to something even more he's saying look you're no different you're no better the kingdom is open to all to all by faith, all regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of class. As we close this morning, I, don't re- I want to remind you, we'll look at this again next week and we'll begin to continue fleshing this out. 
But I want to remind you about the, the Messiah. I want you to be reminded about Jesus that he is approachable. So what need do you have? Bring it to him. You say, well, I've brought all of my needs to him and he's met those needs. I'm in need of nothing. I'm like the sheep in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no want. I won't need anything. Why? Because he meets all of my needs. Maybe that's your testimony. Well, then why don't you quote Psalm 23 a little more and to more people, maybe with an audience. Children, you need to know this about me. I've had many needs and yet every need that I've ever had spiritually, the Lord has supplied chief among them that I be forgiven of my sins and he can forgive you too. In the spirit of Psalm 34, taste and see, children, that the Lord is good to your co-workers. Taste and see, I had need and he met those needs. He's approachable and so you've recognized that he's been approachable for you and your own life and so invite others to do just the same because the kingdom is open by faith. And it's been opened by this capable, faithful, approachable Messiah. But it's not just open to your neighbor. It's not just open to your friend. It's not just open to your family. But it is open to anyone by faith, regardless of your gender, your race, and your class. And so this week, church, let's celebrate that though we have been brought, that though we've brought nothing to Jesus, that he has welcomed us into the kingdom regardless of where we come from or what we look like. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the fact that you sent your son and that he, obedient to your will, came and that he rescued the likes of sick daughters, dead daughters, and sick women and all those in between and that regardless of whether we are male or female or black or white, regardless of, of whether we're rich or we're poor, that you've given an invitation that all who turn from their sins and trust the work of Jesus that he's done on the cross can enter the kingdom. Father, we thank you for that truth and that invitation. May we go this week encouraged and preaching that message. We ask these things to be done in the name of Jesus for his glory. Amen.